This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him again, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and the people came out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. Good morning to everybody here and online as well. We're continuing in our study of Mark this week. We've seen a lot of narratives, these pictures of, of Jesus and his interactions with the people and his disciples. We've seen healing of many from various ailments, including demon possession already. Um, he's repeatedly told people he healed. Don't tell anyone that I did it. And of course, they pretty much ignored him. And who can blame them? They would want to tell everyone, wouldn't they? We've seen him teach in parables, noting that the mystery of the kingdom is given to his disciples and followers. Those outside his disciples and true followers will not understand and be able to apply the meaning and implications of the parables. And today we come to an amazing story of a healing of a demon-possessed man. 
This is, in fact, according to Tim Keller, the longest, most vivid and detailed account in the book of Mark and the longest, most detailed and vivid account in the entire Bible of an exorcism of demons. They always give me the easy ones to preach on. And there's a lot to unpack here, so let's jump in. So what we're going to see today is that the Bible has really a very sophisticated view of evil and sickness. We're going to see the pattern of evil in a person's life, and we're going to see the defeat of evil. Now, as we look at our text today, I actually would want you to look back at verse, uh, to the last verse that we looked at last week, chapter 4, verse 41. Recall that the disciples had been coming across the sea with Jesus, and he was asleep in the back, and a big storm came up. You remember all that? They were amazed that he was asleep. They woke him up because they were frightened, and he calmed the sea. Verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the disciples had seen Jesus calm the wind and the weather, and they were fearful. And they were probably thinking, who is this to whom I've attached my life? Who is this man that I'm following? And you know, I can't help but think that after Jesus hears that question, knowing what was to follow, he would have thought to himself, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, what you may not realize is that Jesus and the disciples have sailed across the sea to a predominantly Gentile area. I didn't actually realize this before I started studying this. Verse 20, the last verse in our passage today, tells us they were in the Decapolis. This was an area of 10 Roman cities. Remarkably, then, Jesus is taking his ministry of healing and redemption to the Gentiles. He actually does this four times in the Gospels. He's in Tyre and Sidon, according to Matthew and Mark. He's in Caesarea Philippi, according to all three of the synoptic gospel writers. And he returns to the Decapolis later in Mark. And we know the rest of the story in Acts, don't we? We know of the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. So we don't think it's very odd that Jesus went to the Gentile territory. But man, it must have been really weird to the disciples. Here they get in a boat. They're going across the sea. They think they're going to die. Jesus calms the sea. And where do they go? They land in Gentile territory. And the first thing they run into is this demon-possessed man. They must have been thinking, who is this man, Jesus? And what is he doing? Interestingly as well, Jesus tells the man at the end of the story to go and tell everyone in Gentile territory what had happened. Now, Remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the, most, the secret, that, uh, the messianic secret that Jesus was trying to promote because he didn't want the Jews to sweep him up into power. Well, that wasn't going to happen in Gentile territory. I mean, Gentile territory is Roman territory. There's no concern here that the people are going to sweep him up and try to make him king. They're really pretty happy with Caesar. They're not about to reject Caesar and proclaim Jesus as king. And the man that Jesus... Uh, confronts has been profoundly tormented. Now, if you're like me, you've read this passage over and over many times in your life to the point that it's okay. Yep. Yeah, I know this story. I know this story. He's 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 kind of weird, but yeah, I got this story. But please pause for a moment. Reflect on the horror of this man's life. This man's life was truly grotesque and horrible. He is screaming out day and night apparently seldom getting a time of sleep which might afford him some respite. 
He gashes himself with stones. To, to call this self-harm would be an understatement. It's, it's not actually easy to cut yourself with stones. He likely wanted to kill himself because of the midst of, in the midst of the horror in which he lived, but he was never successful. And while it may seem impossible to us that he had strength enough to break chains and shackles, and maybe such things were not as strong as they are now, just think about the damage to his own skin, his own bones, his own joints, his own ligaments that such effort must have caused. And worst of all, he is utterly alone, consigned to live among the dead. Now, don't think this was any kind of quaint graveyard with well-mown uh, grass, you know, lovely, uh, nice gravestones and everything. Really kind of not a, really an unpleasant place to be. You could really pitch a tent pretty well in some of those flat spaces. This is not that at all. In that day, tombs were hewn out of stone and bodies laid in them, hopefully covered with enough spices to reduce the stench. This man is taking refuge in shallow, cut-out caves with dead, rotting corpses. This is a man utterly controlled by evil and driven to horrible circumstances. And undoubtedly, but not stated, many others had tried to exorcise these demons before. There were a lot of other people around exorcising demons besides Jesus. And then we have this bizarre request from the demons that they be sent into the huge herd of pigs nearby, and Jesus permits it. There are several results of this. First, the pigs rush into the sea and they are drowned. Now, just think about this. This is a huge economic loss to somebody. 2,000 pigs. That'd be a big pig farm around here. All right? So just, you know. And then the, the herdsmen. The herdsmen are probably thinking, oh, my gosh, what are the owners going to think? All right? They're going to think we let these people off into the, let, let, the, let these people, let these pigs off and go out into the sea. So they run into town to tell everybody what happened. They were terrified that they might be blamed. So they tell them it's all Jesus' fault. And then the townspeople see the tormented man now dressed and calm, not in chains and shackles. And notice their response. It was just like the disciples who saw Jesus calm the sea. Their response was fear. But this fear caused them to implore Jesus to leave the region. Now I kind of wonder, why, why was that? Why, why did they want him to leave? Were, were they worried about further economic loss? Did they not want to deal with a man who might upset their community and the status quo and, and you know, just mess things up? And Did they prefer ignorance and stability to truth and change? We can only speculate. And then fourth, the man wants to go with Jesus. But as I've said, he is sent out into Gentile territory. This is the first man who's a missionary to the Gentiles. Even before Paul, this man's out telling the Gentiles who Jesus is. He's sharing his story of the healing at the hands of Jesus, son of the most high God. This is an amazing and, and just truly amazing story. Now, what in the world are we to make of this today? In our post-enlightenment, post-modern world, where few people believe in God and even fewer people believe in demons, what are we supposed to do with this? Is this just an embarrassing story that points to the simplistic, unsophisticated understandings and worldview of the ancient Near East? 
It's just just another story that reflects the Bible writer's poor understanding of what makes people tick and what makes people sick. Where all illness, mental, emotional, or physical illness is attributed to demons and evil spirits. Many today in the church and outside the church would say the answers to those questions are yes. They're just going to blow this off. Complete fable. No application for us today. And I would caution those who would do so, including ourselves. So my first point today is the Bible actually has a fairly sophisticated, really a rather sophisticated understanding of evil and sickness. It's best noted actually in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 24. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Now think about all the situations that I just mentioned. What do you see? Well, he heals them of various diseases and pains. We would call those physical illnesses. He healed people with demon possession. We saw that today and we've seen it before. He heals those who are paralyzed, those who maybe had cerebral palsy from birth, those who maybe had strokes later in life. But the one that's the most interesting is the word epileptic. The Greek word here is actually moonstruck. And the Greek word for moonstruck is the word they use for mental illness. So the idea here is not that it's so much a seizure disorder, but these are mental illnesses. So so Matthew 4.24 Matthew 4.24 says that Jesus healed people of physical illness, paralytic uh, disabilities, mental illness, and demon possession. That's a really sophisticated view of illness and evil. They did not equate sickness and demon possession. And a careful reading of the healings of Jesus and the various narratives of the gospel will confirm the same. In my devotionals lately, I've been reading Matthew, Mark, and Acts. And to be honest, until I realized what Matthew 4.24 said, I didn't really pay very close attention to each of those. But indeed, sometimes it's physical illness. Sometimes it's mental illness. Sometimes it's evil spirits and disability, evil spirits and demons. Sometimes it's physical disabilities. So the people of the ancient Near East, including Jesus, had a much more sophisticated understanding of what makes people sick than we modern people in our arrogance are willing to admit. My second point is the pattern of evil in our lives. Now, we frequently state the truth that we are all born with a sinful nature, but I really think very few of us have any real desire or intention that evil would control us. In addition, most of us don't overtly decide one day to trade away something of eternal significance for something of temporal usefulness. Yet the reality is that we do, I do, indeed allow evil to control us. And frankly, we do it often. Now, you might be skeptical. You might be thinking, I don't run around the cemetery with no clothes on under the control of some legion of demons. I'll grant you, you're probably right. And if you do, I'll call Todd. Okay? But I still say to you that you and I often let evil control us. How does this happen? And the short answer is that it happens slowly. There's a famous old German legend that you may know. It's the legend of Faust. It's actually based on a historical figure from the 15th century. 
And the story goes that Faust was a very successful man, but he was very dissatisfied with his life. So he made a deal with the devil, and he exchanged his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. Now, the thing to realize is that before uh, Faust had to give his soul to the devil at the end of his life, he had great power and success during his life. It must have been really pretty spectacular. So keep that in mind as we go. But because few of us, I think none of us, I hope, have overtly made such a deal with the devil. But here's how it happens in our lives. We decide appropriately that there's something that we want or that we want to do or that we want to be. We want to be a great athlete. We want to be a great parent. We want to be a great doctor. We want to be a great pastor. We want to be good looking. We want to be skilled at something creative. We want to be able to do something really well. Whatever, we just decide we want to do that and be that. It's it's a dream or a goal. And the it or the that is not bad. But here's the problem. Because eventually, if we're not careful, that desire, that dream, that goal begins to control us. And here's the irony. When we first start going down the path, being something or doing something or having something, it feels really good because we get good at it. The focus often gives us great success, great power, just like Faust. But as we get better and better at whatever we do, we have to work harder and harder to get even better. Maybe we'll be the best someday. But before we know it, the thing that we're trying to do or be controls us. It's become our Lord. It happens slowly. It happens imperceptibly. But suddenly it is controlling us instead of us controlling it. And again, the it is not necessarily evil. But the control, the lordship it exerts over us is. And that lordship is evil because we have traded things of greater significance. Our family, our friends, God, life itself. For temporal success and recognition. That's the Faustian bargain. Now let me give you an example. Uh, Todd's a big movie watcher. I don't get out to movies very much. Uh, So I look to him to give me the reports on all the movies. Um, But I do watch a little TV from time to time. And uh, my wife and I got hooked on a a British detective series called DCI Banks. DCI, for those of you who aren't uh, of the British mindset, means Detective Chief Inspector. I didn't know that. I had to wait for them to tell me that. It's a detective show. It's got really complex plots, great characters. You know, uh, British uh, drama is just kind of different from American. It's, It's really cool. Sadly, virtually all of the detectives had broken marriages and broken relationships. And that shouldn't surprise us necessarily. They're broken people, just as we are. But it was almost always their zeal for their job that destroyed their marriages. And they knew it. But the job began to control them and destroyed what they had, which was good. And we see that same thing play out in our midst and around us all the time, don't we? 
As I was preparing for today, I came to the interesting realization that it's not only Christians and people who have faith who recognize this. Faultful secularists, secularists noted as well. Many of you will know a man named David, or know of, a man named David Foster Wallace. He was an American author. He committed suicide in 2008, sadly. But he gave a commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College. Some people say this is the greatest commencement speech ever given. I'm going to give you some excerpts. And remember, as I read this, he's a secularist. He's not a believer. Here's something else that's weird but true, he said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up weak and afraid, and you will need more ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. Now, I would add that they are our default settings because of our sinful nature. And our sinful nature wants to think that everything in the universe is about us. It's about me. That's what the whole world's here for. It's all about me. That's what led Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They thought it was all about them, and so do we. So the pattern of evil in our lives is usually not visibly like that of the demoniac whom Jesus healed, But this worship of things that we desire, this can be just as grotesque, as pitiful, horrible, life-sucking, and destructive to self and others as the experiences of that poor man. What in the world do we do? And that brings me to the final point, the defeat of evil. And again, remarkably, David Foster Wallace had great advice for us. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Wow. Now, he meant the truth that we worship what we desire and to be careful about that. And that's true. But the complete truth is the gospel. We are much worse than we can ever believe as we succumb regularly to worship what we desire, destroying our lives and the lives of others as we do so. And we are much more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we can ever dare hope. The truth is that what will defeat evil is that Jesus on the cross became evil for us and took the punishment that we deserved. The demonic legion begged Jesus not to throw them into the abyss, their place of eternal punishment. We too, because we have worshipped the creation and not the creator, deserve to be thrown into the abyss. But Jesus went into the abyss for us and came back because death and evil were defeated in his death. 
Now we know that evil will only be completely destroyed when the new heavens and the new earth come. So what do we do now? The trick is to keep it in our daily consciousness. I talk often about the things we should do to be able to do this, to be able to keep these things in our daily consciousness, daily devotions, reading the Bible and praying, regular worship, communicating and fellowshipping with other believers in the midst of all this pandemic and, and social distancing, serving others we need to do. And we do need to do all these things, but really what we need to do is constantly remind ourselves throughout the day that we will be controlled by what we worship. And making decisions through the day that we will worship Jesus and keep him Lord of our lives. When we're able to do this, which we will not do perfectly, but when we were able to do this, just like with the demoniac, the shackles and the chains fall off. They're removed. And we become like the demoniac A person sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The money we seek will not master us. We will be its master and we will use it for good. The beauty we seek will not master us. We will be its master and we will recognize true beauty as God does. The power we seek will not master us. We will use it for good. And the knowledge and intellect we we have will not master us. We will use it for God's glory. When we live like this, the burden is lifted, the yoke becomes light, we relax. We enjoy the fullness of life and all that God brings our way. This has been an amazing story of a horribly afflicted man healed by Jesus. On a quick reading, it may seem that it has little to do with us, but as I've pointed out, it has everything to do with us. We're controlled by what we worship. Let's worship Jesus. Amen.